Hello, and welcome to Found, TechCrunch's podcast that brings you the stories behind the startups from the folks that are building them. It's me, your host, Becca Skutak, and I'm joined, as always, by the lovely Dominic Midori Davis. Hey, Dom, how's it going? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. Did you eat breakfast yet today? I had a banana, which I'm starting to realize bananas go brown very fast. I just bought these things on Monday. Oh my God. I love this meme I saw once that they like whisper that they're ripe at like three in the morning. And then by the time you're up, they're like, well, not anymore. They're literally like dead. I have to just chug them all now. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I guess. reason we're talking about breakfast, super relevant for today's show, is because today we have on Gabby Lewis, the co-founder and CEO of Magic Spoon, which is a previously D2C but now available in retail locations across the country, cereal company based on the nostalgic old cereal flavors we all know and love. And before we jump into the conversation, we are going to do a two truths and a lie. All right, so listen carefully, see which one is the lie, and we'll talk about it after the conversation. So, one, Magic Spoon had to get lawyers involved to make sure they could still call it cereal, even though there are no cereal grains. Or is the lie that they're available in stores in the UK? Or is the lie that the characters on the boxes are based on big brand cereal characters? Well, well, listeners, you'll just have to keep listening to find out. And here is our conversation with Gabby. Hey, Gabby, how's it going? Very well. How are you? I'm doing well. I saw you guys are based in Brooklyn. Whereabouts? We are actually based in Manhattan now. So our office is in Tribeca. Oh, cross to the dark side. I know. I know. Well, Dom also lives in the dark side, so she probably wouldn't call Uh, it that. Yes. Whereabouts are you? I am uptown, which I had a founder say was Siberia because it's so far, I guess. <laughs> but hey, uptown Manhattan. Uptown is nice. I mean, uptown Thank is you. very pleasant, very nice. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, now that we all feel very validated about where we live, Gabby, I think a good place to dive in would be why don't you just start by telling us a bit about Magic Spoon? Yeah, of course. Magic Spoon reimagines your favorite breakfast cereal with more protein, less sugar, less carbs. So imagine the favorite breakfast cereal you grew up with as a kid, Lucky Charms, Fruit Loops, whatever it might be. And we basically tried to recreate that same taste and texture with none of the junk ingredients. We launched in 2019. So we've been in business coming up in five years now. The first few years were entirely direct to consumer. And then about a year and a half ago, we launched into retail. And now that's about half of our business. And just taking a step back before we dive into what Magic Spoon looks like today, I'm curious a bit about your background because I know Magic Spoon is not only not the first startup that you have co-founded, but you also previously came from a career more in the financial sector. So I'm curious, how exactly do you go from Bridgewater to Crickets to Cereal? Well, the, the Bridgewater piece was extremely brief, but that was what I was orienting myself towards. So I studied philosophy and economics in college from Scotland originally, came to the US, studied philosophy and economics, really, really was passionate about philosophy. But my parents insisted if I only studied philosophy, I would never get a real job. So I studied economics as well. Turns out I only had a real job for a few months and then started my prior business, which was exoprotein. And so the idea with that business was that insect protein, as crazy as it sounds to a lot of people, is an incredibly good food source, not only for an individual from a health perspective, but also for the world from an environmental perspective. So to raise 
insects or crickets specifically, the protein source requires less feed, less water, less space compared to conventional proteins. And so we had this idea of if only we could convince Americans to adopt this protein source that seems weird, it could have massive implications for the food system. And so we came up with a line of protein bars that incorporated cricket protein as a way to sort of introduce Americans to this idea that seemed weird, but protein bars were this kind of introductory vehicle to ease people into it. And so we had these protein bars with the recipes developed by three Michelin star chef, and we sold those online and Whole Foods and Equinox gyms, ran that business for about five years before selling it and then starting this one. And I'm curious on both the idea behind EXO and then, of course, the idea behind Magic Spoon as well. How did you land on these ideas, especially because it's interesting that they're both in the same category as well. How did you come to those ideas in the first place? Yeah, so I think for EXO, we kind of stumbled into it. It was an idea that, that made sense to us. We liked the potential huge impact of that idea if you convince people to be insects. You know, it could be massively impactful for the food system. That was an idea that was sort of like intellectually engaging. We thought it would be an amazing marketing challenge to think about how do you convince people to this thing that is kind of weird, but how do you make it cool or even aspirational? We love the idea of looking at all these prior case studies of foods that were once weird and then became mainstream. So you can look at sushi as this fascinating example where, you know, 30, 40 years ago in the US, the idea of raw fish was a little bit gross to most people. And then the way it became mainstream was that a chef in California basically created the California roll and they kind of hid the raw fish inside the seaweed with the rice and they started selling it to celebrities in California. And then it kind of spread outward from there. Or you can look at lobster, for example, which was a, you know, used to be a peasant food. And actually in Maine, it's illegal today to feed lobster to prisoners because decades ago, prisoners rebelled that they were being fed lobster every day. And they thought it was just like being fed vermin of the sea. And so there's all these interesting intellectual case studies of how you take something that's weird and you make it normal. And we thought insect protein kind of deserved that treatment because logically it's so good for you, so sustainable. And so that was more like an intellectual idea that made sense to us, seemed like an interesting business challenge. And so he went for it. Fast forward five years after doing that for a few years, I think we underestimated how hard it is to not only convince an entire country to eat something they think is a little bit strange, but also building up a supply chain from scratch. So there was no supply chain essentially for crickets when we started. There were a few farms dotted around the country, primarily actually for fishing baits and reptile feed. We had to work with farms to create, you know, human grade cricket protein farms from scratch. We actually lived in Thailand for six months working with farmers there because there's a long tradition of cricket farming in Thailand. Tremendously difficult business, both from the supply side and the demand side. And so then when we sold that, we were thinking, what's next? We really wanted to have kind of the opposite experience of EXO. And so we wanted to go after a category that was a huge category that nobody had really innovated in in a long time. We sort of had this list of criteria and we were looking for a very large category, something that was ripe for disruption, hadn't seen much innovation in decades, something that lended itself to the direct-to-consumer business model, meaning we wanted something that was consumed habitually, something that was light, easy to ship. And we started just narrowing down options and eventually came to cereal as this huge category that nobody really innovated in for many years. There's granola, there's slightly lower sugar options, but 
really, if you look at the serial aisle a decade ago, it looks the same as it did 30, 40 years ago. And so it seems like a really exciting product to launch category to go into. Not to mention the fact that I, like most people, grew up just loving breakfast cereal. And so from a personal perspective as well, the idea of kind of reinventing cereal for a modern consumer was really exciting. Something I am curious about, because it seems like this was a thread between both of the companies you worked on in some regard, is this D2C element. Because D2C has kind of gone in and out of favor with investors in the startup community over the last decade. And I'm curious why, when you guys went out, especially to found Magic Spoon, why you were trying to find an idea that fit in that D2C category or lended well to it. Great question. We intended to launch D2C because that was what we knew. Our last business was primarily D2C. This was also five, six years ago. And so the D2C model wasn't as effective as it was 10, 15 years ago, but it was far more effective than it is today. And you still could build a business on you know, paid social ads. That was what we knew. And that was where most of our experience was. And so that was one of many criteria. At the time, we viewed that as only how we were going to launch the business. We didn't think that we were going to be entirely direct to consumer for three, four years which is what ended up happening. Mm. We thought we had launched D2C, do that for a few months, get interest from retailers, and six months after launching, be a predominantly retail business. As it so happened, we grew far bigger, far faster than we expected. And in general, we're always trying to remain pretty narrowly focused. And so because D2C was working so well for so long, we just kept being focused on that. We also did it a little bit differently from other brands. D2C for us, especially in the early days, it wasn't a game of just paid social. Right. We had a lot of influencers and investors that we actually got on board pre-launch to enable us to reach huge audiences without running paid social ads to them. So we have a lot of health and wellness influencers in our cap table that were able to kind of launch us to their audiences. And we invested in those channels as well as podcast, TV, variety of acquisition channels beyond just paid social, which has obviously had a harder time in recent years. Definitely. And it's so interesting that you guys did end up changing the timeline as much as you did with getting into retail. I know people who have listened to this podcast know I'm really interested in grocery stores, logistics, the supply chain. I think it's a really fascinating line of business and know how hard it is it can be to get new products shelf space. And I'm curious, how did that rollout go? Because it sounds like it was fairly recently, but it now makes up a big part of the business. If you want to talk about kind of like when you guys knew it was the time, because it was different from your original timeline, how did that end up going for you guys? Yeah, so we launched in retail about 18 months ago. So it was the summer before last. And we initially launched with Target nationwide. Target has a long history of launching previously direct to consumer brands into retail. So if you look at the the Warbies, the Harrys of the world, a lot of them launched with Target first. And so We've been getting to know them for some time. They approached us quite early on. We told them, you're an amazing partner eventually. We're not ready. And after a couple of years of playing that game, we eventually decided that it was time. You know, we could definitely see that D2C was getting harder, not only for ourselves, but for a lot of our peers. So we decided to launch into retail and that Target was a very natural fit, given their proven history of taking brands like ours to retail. So we launched it first with them. That went incredibly well. And so three months later, we launched with Sprouts and all of their stores. And then three months after that, which was January of 2023, so a year ago, we then took that early success and proof points of being in Target and our velocities being strong there. And we launched essentially nationwide in Walmart, Kroger, Safeway, Albertsons. Now, a year later, we just actually last week expanded into Costco as well. So we're in 
probably about 12,000 stores right now spanning most major retailers in the country. And retail is is quickly caught up with our D2C business to be a meaningful portion of our overall business. And we're now truly an omnichannel business, which two years ago, we were entirely online. And something I'm always interested about too is because I know one of the struggles that comes with going into retail stores is the supply chain is different, how you do inventory is different. Like it's just so different from selling on D2C. How did you guys prepare to launch in these stores? And especially when it does sound like it is almost 50-50, how do you manage the different demands and supply and stuff like that on both sides of the house? It's definitely hard. And especially when you've oriented your entire business to be best in class D2C across every part of the business, right? Not only the growth marketers who, of course, don't know very much about in-store shopper marketing, but even the logistics people in our team who have spent three years optimizing you know, how do we ship four boxes to someone's house as cheaply and quickly as possible? Them now working with truckloads to a Costco warehouse is just an entirely different thing entirely. So you have to strike the balance of bringing in people who have been there and done that with coaching the amazing people you have, right? And that that's always a tricky thing to balance, but something we strive for. So unlike D2C, which is sometimes a little bit of the wild, wild west, you know, there's always new tactics, always new channels. Retail, they're really is a playbook. And so we brought in some of the people who who know that playbook, whether it's on the logistics and operations and supply chain side, or on the shopper marketing and trade marketing side, as well as a couple of senior hires. We brought in people who have taken brands nationwide to target Walmart, understand the intricacies and the politics of working with some of these retailers, and even things that I would have never thought about, like how does Target perceive your pricing at Kroger, and how does running a promotion in one retailer affect the feelings of a buyer at another retailer, and what's the call you're going to get the next day after you change your pricing somewhere? And so all of these small things that I've personally never gone through, we brought in people who understand what's around the corner and know what's to expect at retail there. And are also able to, you know, coach our existing team to make sure they can transition to being experts in D2C to truly understanding omni-channel, whether that's in a marketing sense or logistics or something else. And something that's so interesting too about the D2C space, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, the market has viewed D2C in and out of favor over the past couple of years. Investor sentiment has swung pretty far in both directions. It seems like the space interests their ebbs and flows. And I'm curious what investor interest has been like for you guys. I know you guys have obviously raised a pretty good amount of venture capital, especially your raise in 2022, which was in a tougher fundraising market too. What has investor reception been like to this? Were people really happy about the move into retail? Did you find some people weren't super into D2C? People were. What has the feedback been like? I think it's not that people are into D2C or into retail necessarily. They're into business fundamentals, right? So if you're running a purely D2C business that's acquiring customers sustainably and profitably, and you've cracked channels that are maybe hard for other companies, I think even though it's true that today on average interest in D2C businesses is lower than it was, if one had a D2C business that worked, then that generalization would no longer hold true. And so for us, we've always been focused on building a business that makes sense. We never viewed D2C as our innovation. We viewed our product is our innovation, right? So the earliest D2C brands selling to the customer online like was the thing. They were selling something that you could get anywhere else. There was no real product innovation. Their innovation was cutting out costs from the retailer and you know selling to someone differently. For us, our innovation was taking cereal, getting rid of the sugar and the carbs, adding in protein, like reimagining the product. D2C 
happened to be how we got the product to people for the first couple of years. But we never viewed that as like what our innovation was or what was special about us as a business. What our innovation was and what's special about us is kind of cracking the code on how do you make something that, you know, looks and tastes like sugary cereal actually be good for you. And so that sort of stayed true throughout the years. And as long as our business fundamentals have looked good, which they have, you know, we've had more than enough interest from investors. And as you mentioned, we've raised a little over a hundred million dollars over the course of the years from investors that range from VCs and private equity firms to a eclectic group of celebrities like Amy Schumer and Nick Jonas and Shakira and several health and wellness influencers as well. And now we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back in a second. What was it like initially pitching your company? Like, how do you approach an investor and say like, hey, I want to disrupt the cereal market? What was it like initially? Well, it's funny because at the time, cereal was almost a bit of a dirty word, which seems silly like now that it's working. But when we first pitched this idea to investors, especially food and beverage investors who know this industry, they would say, why would you ever get into cereal? The cereal market has been declining every year for the past however many years. Millennials are lazy. They don't want a pour a bowl of cereal anymore. Cereal's off trend. And they just like, it seemed like a bad category to go into when we pitched it initially. We had one investor actually who said to us, it's an okay idea, but don't use the word cereal. Use the word clusters because no investor is going to back a cereal business because it's this like old stale category. Clusters. Yeah. When we looked at the industry and we saw it declining year over year, our conclusion wasn't nobody wants cereal. Our conclusion was nobody wants sugary junky cereal, but everyone still loves cereal. And so if you could create cereal that looked and tasted like that, but was actually fun and really good for you and had protein and didn't have the sugar, everybody would take that over some other healthy breakfast. Like when we were talking to these investors and they'd say, nobody's eating cereal anymore. They're eating Greek yogurt. They're having a green juice. They're drinking a smoothie. They're grabbing a protein bar on the way out the door. My intuition was nobody wants that, right? Like very few people enjoy their green juice or want to grab a stale protein bar as they walk out the door. They want to be having a bowl of Fruit Loops or Lucky Charms, but they feel like they shouldn't because it's full of crap. And so we didn't quite buy that line of reasoning, but that was what people said to us in the early days when we were pitching it. Luckily, we had some investors from our last business that sort of believed in us as operators and founders. And so we were able to raise the first round from you know investors that backed us previously. And even if they were perhaps skeptical of the whole cereal thing, they trusted our intuition on it. And you spoke about the ingredients like millennials and younger consumers want more healthier cereal options. Was it hard sourcing the, the ingredients to make cereal healthier? Sourcing the ingredients wasn't necessarily hard, but formulating the right taste and texture was hard. So cereal is, you know, usually grains and sugar, basically. And we wanted to create that texture using no grains, literally no cereal grains, right? And we even had to speak to lawyers in the early days to see, can we call this cereal? Because there's not any cereal grains in it. And when you try to turn protein powder into the texture of cereal, typically what comes out the other end is something that's like very hard and doesn't have that light, airy texture that you want. We spent several months running hundreds of variations in a formulation to create just the unflavored base cereal loop 
using mostly protein to have that correct texture that you want from cereal. So that was kind of step one that was quite difficult. And then once you have that unflavored base, then the sort of question is, okay, how do you sweeten that and flavor that while using only natural flavorings, you know, natural sweeteners, no sugar to approximate the taste of all the sugary cereals. And so then it was several weeks of figuring out in what ratios do we use certain natural sweeteners, knowing that we want to stay away from, you know, every artificial sweetener. We also want to stay away from cane sugar, from coconut sugar, from a very long list of ingredients. Then also how do we replicate what in some instances are very unnatural flavors using natural flavoring, right? So how do you replicate the flavor of Fruit Loops, which is not a real thing that exists in nature with natural flavors? So that also took a lot of time. And I think that is our innovation. And that is like what our business is, is having created a product that looks and tastes close enough to sugary cereal, but isn't sugary cereal. Wait, I have an insane question. And this might not even be a real thing. When you're trying to like copy the flavoring of other popular cereals, do these companies have their flavoring copyrighted in some way? Well, I should be clear, we're not necessarily copying other flavors and cereals. You know, we're, we're taking as inspiration your favorite childhood cereal and recreating it in a better way. But we have an idea that we want to create a chocolatey cereal. And so we'll work with the Flavor House to try dozens of different chocolatey flavorings. And then we'll get feedback. You know, we'll say, okay, Virgin 3.2 was not quite milky enough. Let's like combine the milkiness of another sample you gave us with like the bitter chocolate notes of this other sample. And so it's like an iterative process of giving feedback on various like tasting notes or aromas and things like that and getting to the right balance of flavors that creates that nostalgia we want someone to have when they open the box, smell it, eat it. Even things as simple as our very first version of chocolate didn't make the milk chocolatey, like it didn't fall off the cereal. And we got feedback early on that people loved that flavor, but they didn't feel a nostalgia because their milk didn't get chocolatey. And so that was sort of V2 of our chocolate flavor was how do we create a flavoring system that over the course of two or three minutes, half of it kind of like falls off the cereal to infuse your milk with chocolate. And so every element of the sort of like taste process is considered like that as well. And something that also has always stood out to me about Magic Spoon is the branding on the boxes and the marketing and how these boxes do look when you come across them in Target and how the website looks. And you guys have like a very distinct style and very distinct like design structure for your products. And I'm curious how you guys came to pick that because it definitely stands out when you walk down the cereal aisle, but it looks very different from what everything else looks like. So I'm curious, like, why you guys landed on this strategy. Yeah, it's interesting. We took inspiration from all the cereals of the past, right? So we wanted to nod to classic cereal branding, which by the way is incredible, right? Like cereal branding is one of the most iconic branding of the past several decades and it sticks with you. And one of the interesting things about the cereal category is that even though it's typically products that are not very good for you, people have very positive associations with it in contrast to other categories, right? So if you ask someone about like soda, for example, they often view like big soda as this evil thing. They think that some of those big soda companies like are terrible for the planet. Cereal, they don't think that, right? Even though they might, it's just as sugary, it's just as bad for you. But people have a very positive connotation typically with cereal in their childhood. And that's a testament to the amazing branding that these cereal companies have had in the marketing they've done. 
And so we wanted to play into that, to nod to that. And so we created this line of characters that are slightly grown up, slightly psychedelic versions of serial characters. And we wanted to bring in lots of color and really bring people back to their childhoods and stand in contrast to other healthy serials, which are typically branded as very boring, plain, muted, minimalist. It's kind of interesting, the aisle, because our serial is often beside the healthy serials, which have very boring, plain, white branding. But it looks kind of similar to the junky serials in the sense that it's very colorful, there are characters on it. And what we wanted to say to the consumer is that you don't have to make this false choice between boring, healthy, you know, minimalist packaging, cereal you know is going to taste like cardboard, and then fun, colorful, junky, sugary cereal. You can actually have a product, we're giving it to you, which is fun, colorful, makes you feel amazing, but it's actually really good for you as well. And so tell people they don't need to compromise anymore. And I'm curious how you guys think about scale here as well, because obviously in the five years you guys have been around, you expanded into retail. So you have multiple distribution channels now. And I know from ordering on the website that you guys now have treats. So little like not granola bars, but like something that you would grab. You would grab when you want a granola bar, you'd grab a treat. And I'm curious how you think about scale and sort of expanding from here. Do you think about more distribution channels, different types of products, more cereal flavors? Like you're in a category where it's like cereal alone. There's a ton of flavor options, tons of potential and stuff. But of course, those adjacent categories also have opportunity too. Like how do you guys think about scaling from here? We generally want to be as narrowly focused as we can be. And cereal is such an enormous category that we've been able to stay strictly focused on cereal and grow quite large quite quickly. I think if we were in a smaller category, you probably would have had to expand beyond our core sooner. That being said, there are some very obvious adjacent categories that make sense for our brand to extend into. And for the past few years, there have been a few product lines that people have been continually asking us for and or making themselves with our products. And so the treats that we just launched recently, which are kind of our take on a classic Rice Krispie treats, were something that people were tagging us on for years, making their own treats from our cereal. They were asking us for years for a version of Magic Spoon on the go. And our brand obviously, you know, perfectly fits that kind of product category. Also, if you look at that section of the store, there's very little innovation in it as well. So we're kind of straddling the line between like a protein bar and a Rice Krispie Treat type product with the fun and the format and the texture of a Rice Krispie Treat type product but with the nutrition of a protein bar. And so that's something we launched a couple of months ago and the reception's been tremendously positive. It's interesting because the kind of bar aisle is very different to the cereal aisle in that the cereal aisle is dominated by two or three companies, very little innovation. You look at the bar aisle, you've got protein bars, energy bars, you know, all these different subcategories of bars, dozens of startups, there's a new one every week. And so it's actually kind of an interesting dynamic for us in our answer, very different to zero dynamic. But, you know, the core principles and what we stand for in the product are the same. You know, we're bringing fun and deliciousness and better texture to a large category that's kind of lacking in that. So most of the most popular bars that have been around for the past few years, no one really likes eating them. They're incredibly chewy. You know, you're sacrificing something. And so again, like we did the cereal, we wanted to say to people, we're going to bring you a product that doesn't involve that kind of sacrifice. It functions like a hardcore protein bar in terms of the macronutrients. But from an enjoyment perspective, it's more similar to a Rice Krispie Treat type product. Have you seen any interest from other big cereal companies and possibly just acquiring your company or possibly just copying what you do already? They, they actually created similar versions far sooner than we thought. So probably a couple of years into us launching, we saw the first one and actually a new one came out last week. 
So at this point, there are three or four, you know, similar products that have been brought to market by large cereal companies. General Mills has one called Wonderworks. Kellogg's just launched one called Eat Your Mouth Off. Post has one called Incredible. You know, especially in retail, the data is public, right? So when we launched in retail and our velocity was as strong as it was, it was very easy for them to see that there's something they're missing here. And so, you know, they quickly got to work and, and launched products that have similar attributes in the sense that they're higher protein, lower sugar. And so now there, there's several brands that have the same kind of high level value proposition. We definitely stand by ours as the best product. And I think the results and the retail velocity definitely speaks to that as well. And from my perspective, it's it's a huge compliment, honestly, to see these brands turn around, you know, their versions of what we're doing so quickly. And I think speaks to their acknowledgement of how big the potential market for this is, which nobody saw a few years ago, right? Even though you can look at these other categories like ice cream, for example, when Halo Top came in and took 5% of that giant market by creating a better version. For whatever reason, people were skeptical that could happen in cereal. And now it is happening and they caught on. But it's been exciting to see. And Magic Spoon is also sold in the UK, right? Or it ships to the UK? We ship to the UK. That's where I grew up. And my, my grandma would never forgive me if she wasn't able to order some to her house. In terms of retail, just in the US. I was going to ask if the big cereal in the UK is the same as big cereal here in the US. It's similar. Some of the ownership is slightly different. They kind of license brands to each other depending on where they have the strongest distribution. But it's similar. There's a couple we don't have over there, or at least we didn't when I was growing up there 15 years ago. Lucky Charms didn't exist for me when I was growing up. It, it's possible it's in the UK today, but it, it wasn't 15, 20 years ago. So there's, there's a few key differences, but we definitely still love our sugary cereal over there in general. And I'm curious, especially where you guys are now in this journey, you're about five years in with Magic Spoon and Right about five years is when you guys decided to sell your last company. And of course, there's a lot of similarities between EXO and Magic Spoon, as well as, of course, differences. And what would you say is one thing you guys did while building EXO that you have done the same with Magic Spoon? And maybe what's one thing you kind of learned from from building EXO that you're doing differently now with Magic Spoon? Something we've done the same is try to do as little of our marketing ourselves and try to get lots of endorsers of the product. So with EXO, we relied very heavily on influencers, which at the time were paleo influencers. It was the heyday of the paleo diet, CrossFit influencers, even our sales channels we sold in like CrossFit gyms and Equinox gyms. And so really tried to, especially for a product like Cricket Protein, we knew it was going to be better if someone else was saying, hey, you should try Cricket Protein for these reasons than this random brand nobody had ever heard of at the time saying, eat bugs, right? And so right. that was something we leaned into very heavily with EXO. And with Magic Spoon, similarly, we raised our first few hundred thousand dollars from influencers. We knew that a little known brand launching wouldn't have much credibility if we just ran an ad saying, try this new cereal that tastes like the cereal you grew up with, but it's got zero sugar. That sounds almost unbelievable. It sounds too good to be true. And so getting people on board, whether it's podcasters or health and wellness influencers or YouTubers to actually say that for us as investors are partnering with them on a paid basis or an affiliate basis. That's been key to strategy of both companies. I think the biggest thing we've done differently is at a fundamental level with Magic Spoon, we took more time up front to make sure we were creating a product that people actually wanted, right? Like nobody wanted cricket bars. We were saying it makes sense for cricket protein to exist. A bar is an interesting way to get it to people. And let us now try and convince you why you should eat that. Whereas with Magic Spoon, if you say to anybody in the street, 
do you love cereal? They'd say yes. And if you say, are you trying to eat a little bit less sugar and maybe a bit more protein? Most people say yes. And so it's a far easier sell. And it was a clear gap in the market rather than us trying to create a market. That's been the biggest difference. I think a lot of like young founders think that they can push their way through any idea. And if you're a good entrepreneur or CEO, you can take any idea and just make it work through sheer will. I believe that at a time with Magic Spoon, it's very clear to me how important product market fit is, which seems obvious, but it is so much easier when there's that fit, which we have here. And so getting that right at the beginning has made this journey infinitely smoother. And five years in, I assume you guys eat quite a lot of cereal while building this company. Do you still love it as much as you did when you got started? I do. I mean, thankfully, we come out with a lot of flavors all the time. So we we typically launch a new flavor every four to six weeks. So that keeps it varied for me. I'm also now eating the new treats most days. So those have replaced my daily cereal habit. And so I've been mixing up there. And over the years, how would you say you've evolved as, I guess, a leader as well? That's a great question. Obviously, you just have to become more and more removed from things that you're either not actually an expert in, even though you might feel like you are, or things that you feel you want to get super involved in a micromanage that you know you shouldn't. And so I think in the early days, we obviously touched every part of branding, every part of marketing. We were obsessive around packaging. I still have that instinct whenever we're seeing an early version of a new product package. I still want to kind of micromanage it or suggest, well, what if we change the size of the font to this? Or what if we move this thing there? So there's infinite examples of things like that every day where... I think as a, as a leader of a larger company with more experts on board, you have to kind of stop yourself. So that's been a constant effort on my part to kind of not get too involved in, in many of those day-to-day decisions that ultimately don't matter. And so I think learning to you know empower the team more and more, learning to bring on experts, especially for areas where there is a playbook. I think for some of the early D2C acquisition, for example, there's not a great playbook for bringing on influencers as investors in your business and then activating them. So that's an area where it made a ton of sense for me to lean in and manage it myself. Whereas now, when you know the equivalent strategic initiative is how do we maximize a launch into Costco, there is a playbook for that. And so understanding which things there is and isn't a playbook for, and then bringing on the experts for all the things where there is a playbook for, I think is also an important evolution. Just following up on that, is there a specific way you and your co-founder divided leadership responsibilities? Was there any drama or did everyone kind of know what they were going to do? Generally, I manage sales, marketing, fundraising, and he manages products, operations, legal. Never any drama. I would say branding in the early days is the most fun part for both of us. And so even though that technically falls under marketing, which is technically my purview, we sort of share branding in the early days. And I would say not quite drama, but that that was sort of like the compromise, right? Like I'm going to get marketing, which is more fun in general, but like branding and packaging specifically in the early days, we'll do that together. And I think we just have time for one last question, but we can't wrap this up without knowing which cereal flavor is your favorite? I'm going to say two flavors mixed together. My favorite is mixing the cocoa with peanut butter. Oh, I love that you have like all of the say in like what you guys make and you are mixing them together. (laughs) Couldn't you make one that's just a combination of the two? Yeah, it's a great point. Um, We actually did as a limited edition flavor and we'll probably bring it back again. Okay, good. It's funny. We actually, um, we did at one point launch one that was cocoa peanut butter 
kind of because I loved it so much. It was just cocoa and peanut butter combined. And before we launched it, we did a teaser on social media saying, we're about to launch this flavor, like cocoa, peanut butter, get ready. And a few of the comments were like, is this just going to be cocoa and peanut butter combined, mixed together? And a bunch of people came to what they thought was our defense. And they were like, no, that's so lazy. Magic Swim would never do that. They wouldn't just mix two flavors in a new box. And that actually is what we did for the limited edition flavor. And we felt so bad. And we felt like we like betrayed our customers. And so that that's the story of cocoa peanut butter like existing and why it doesn't exist in the same way now, but I mix it myself still. We were we were shamed from just combining them. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. That is too funny. Well, now <laughs> I guess that's something to look forward to, the new cocoa peanut butter. Yeah, we also have new treats flavors launching in a couple of weeks. So that's so what's getting me excited too. Oh, very exciting. Well, we are right about at time. So thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been super fun. And now I am very hungry. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. And that was our conversation with Gabby. Dom, before we dive in, what was the lie? The lie. The lie is that Magic Spoons is not available in stores in the UK, but you can still order it online. Ooh. Well, that is good news for all of our UK listeners who heard that at the top of the episode and were like, well, I hope that's not the lie. So that's good. But Dom, what else stood out to you from this conversation? I mean, like little things, like the fact that there is scientists that determine what can be cereal. Like when he was talking about the ingredients, I didn't know that cereal was like an ingredient, like cereal grains. I didn't know that was a thing. No, it's so funny to think about that because like the only category that I like knew those parameters for is like beer. Like certain countries like Germany have clarifications of what can be considered a beer. It has to have like certain ingredients in it and stuff like that. But like, I guess I like, of course, should assume that is a, for other industries. I just like forgot that cereal would be like that regulated in like well, it, terminology and stuff like that. It dawned on me that I don't know what cereal is. Like, I have no right. idea what is in cereal. <laughs> You're like, I guess they would have to define it if like people were going to consistency and stuff. I guess. I have no idea what this is. But Magic Spoon seems cool. You've had Magic Spoon. I have. Yeah, I ordered it. It's funny that we had this episode now because I ordered them not that long ago for the first time. And like, I've been getting their ads forever and I've had some friends who also have ordered them in the past. But like, we just ordered the first box maybe in like October or November. And overall, my boyfriend and I really liked it. We definitely like some flavors more than others. The thing with me is that I know they do a lot of not all their marketing by any means, but like a lot of the factors that Gabby kept talking about are like nostalgia. My parents didn't let me eat that stuff when I was younger. So like, I don't have nostalgia for like Cocoa Puffs because like I never ate them. So it's like, I was interested in like the boring. I was like, ooh, honey nut. But like, you're not roping me in with like Cocoa Puffs and stuff like that. Not honey nut. Wow. So the Cocoa Puffs, you don't even know. You don't even know. I guess not. So what, you ordered it online? You didn't go to a store? Yeah, which it definitely felt weird to like order cereal online. That's really interesting because he spoke a little bit about his DTC to in-store online versus in-store strategy. And it's so interesting to think about cereal as DTC. When he started talking about the transition into, obviously they still sell online, but transition into having stuff in retail stores, I was like, well, I know how hard it is to get products into retail, but this definitely lends better to retail because I haven't ordered it since just because I just don't have space in my apartment to have like four to five boxes of cereal at a time. But I'm sure if I saw it at a store, if I walked by it, I'd be like, oh yeah, that was good. Like I'm going to pick that up. So it's like D2C for like food. If you're like ordering everything else elsewhere, 
is interesting, but they sounds like they were pretty successful at it too. So I guess retail with being like a quote unquote easier way to like catch a customer's eye. I'm not surprised it's become like such a big part of their business so quickly. Yeah, I imagine millennial shopping habits is really online. And also probably the pandemic helped a lot because everyone was buying things online. Yeah. It's like, oh, you can get cereal online and just have it delivered. That's fair because like I still don't order my groceries online. I know we talked about this a little bit with when we had Misfit Markets on and even just like the behavior change of buying stuff like that online. Like I never did that during COVID either. But I already feel insane because I'm like, we get these things at Key Foods, these things at Trader Joe's, this specific thing at Kent Market, and this at blah, blah. So it's like adding on like an online component to that feels crazy. But I guess, I mean, what more the merrier, I guess. Well, I've said this before. I buy all of my groceries online, even though I live next door to two grocery stores. It's awful and it's sad and I shouldn't do it. I do it anyway. (laughs) But if I see Magic Spoon, maybe I'll pick it up and try it. I'm really interested now because I loved cereal growing up. I still love cereal, even though I don't own cereal at the moment and haven't since I started living alone. But when I was a kid, I loved cereal. Yeah, I'm interested, definitely. And the the health consciousness. It's really interesting to see how all of these kind of, I guess, millennial targeted health brands that are leaning in on nostalgia and they're supposed to be better for our health. And I find that interesting because not to bring big industry into this, but I do think that probably millennials and Gen Zers, it's kind of like, this is our our way to kind of go against the sugariness in all of our food that's clearly killing us. It is crazy to think about too, because obviously healthier cereals do exist, but like they're all like brand this, brand that. And it's like, he was so right to be like, there's really no middle ground. That's like, we want this to taste good and like be good for you. But it's so crazy like to think about them getting this product market fit and obviously being able to expand and grow and things like that off of the cereal concept because Gabby's first startup did not really find that product market fit, which is funny now because now that I've tried, I remember when people started building these alt protein startups with crickets and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, I get people eat that, but like maybe not my journey. But then I was in Mexico City last year and I ate crickets for the first time and I was like, these are good. So like, I'm like, actually, I get the whole concept of like, well, if you get people to try it, they're going to realize it's fine. And like, I just had them fried like in a bar or something with like other flavors. Like, I'm like, yeah, I would have bought that now, but I probably wouldn't have literally when he was building it. Crickets? Yeah, I'm sure it tastes lovely and I'm sure it's all good for you. I could not see myself just willing willingly trying it. Like it would he would have to disguise it or something. I don't know. Maybe I would eat cricket. Fried cricket. Does it taste like what does it taste like? Kind of like jerky, just like really salty. We found that the key was we would put them in our hands and then look away and then eat them. Ugh. And like forget that that's what we were eating and then it'd be like, oh this is good. But it's like Funny to think about going from that company to like Magic Spoon where it's like even if we don't eat it actively, like we've literally everyone said cereal. So it's like it's like total opposite problems. I love how he was like, let's not build a new market. Let's go disrupt an existing market because cricket might be a hard thing for, I don't know, Americans, do we? Not to speak for all Americans, but I feel like when it comes to bug food, I do feel like we we lean away from that a lot. (laughs) We do. But who knows? That space is really interesting. It'd be funny to like think about if he had done the reverse and like launched the cereal back in like what would have been the heyday of D to C and then like launched that XO now. Like I now I'm like going to think about how they would have both turned out if they had like done the other way around. Well, you know what I wanted to bring up but didn't? I wanted to say he should make a cricket cereal. Oh, yeah. Or something. 
a cricket protein cereal. Yeah, especially because they're trying to make everything super high protein. Maybe there's cricket already in it and he just didn't tell us. Okay. No, I'm totally kidding. He would. He probably would have told us that. <laughs> conspiracy, conspiracy. Maybe there's cricket already in the cereal and we just don't know it. And I guess we don't care. Hey. I thought it tasted good. See? And see, like I was saying, disguise it and people will eat it. Maybe we just launched a new flavor for him. I think we did. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori davis Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Hold up. 